coming up on this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. It's going to be, you know, the biggest shakeup in the history of medicine. Uh, the question is how, uh, how we adapt. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Mark. We all know that as functional medicine practitioners, our time is precious. So imagine having more time to focus on what truly matters, helping your patients achieve optimal health. Arupa Health is here to make that a reality. With Arupa Health's user-friendly portal, you can order thousands of lab tests from over 35 leading lab companies. And the best part, it's completely free. No more juggling multiple invoices or dealing with administrative headaches. Rupa Health simplifies the lab boarding process so you can get the data you need without the hassle. So sign up for free today and experience the power of streamlined lab ordering. I love it. And I know you will too. You can find out more information by going to rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com. Essential fats are, well, essential for our health and our longevity. But we've recently discovered a third essential fat that's the first to be discovered since omega-3s and omega-6s more than 90 years ago, and it's become an essential part of my longevity routine. It's called pentadecanoic acid, or C15, from Fatty15. New research has shown that it has three times the cellular benefits of omega-3, more even than the top longevity drugs, rapamycin, metformin, and acarbose. And there's mounting evidence it can help us repair and replenish our cells, strengthen membranes, and ultimately reverse multiple drivers of aging. So it's really broadening the scope of how we understand essential fatty acids as longevity compounds. And for a limited time, Fatty15 is offering listeners an exclusive 10% off a 90-day starter kit of their award-winning science-backed C15. Just visit fatty15.com and use the code DRHYMAN10. That's F-A-T-T-Y-1-5.com. And now let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Welcome to The Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman, and this is a place for conversations that matter. Every day, we're hearing about new advancements in the world of artificial intelligence. It's certain to have really profound impacts on almost every aspect of our life, including the way we practice medicine and the way we as individuals can gain control over our own health, which is exactly what my conversation today is about with Dr. Eric Topol. Dr. Topol is a giant in the field of medicine. Dr. Topol is the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. He's a professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president of Scripps Research. He's published over 1,200 peer-reviewed articles with more than 330,000 citations. And he was also elected to the National Academy of Medicine, which is a huge honor. And he is one of the top 10 most cited researchers in all of medicine. His principal scientific focus has been on individualized medicine using genomic, digital, and AI tools. He's authored three best-selling books on the future of medicine, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, The Patient Will See You Now, and Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Topol is the principal investigator to two large NIH grants, the All of Us Research Program, which is really important. It supports precision medicine. It's over a million people tracking all their data, their phenotype, everything. It's going to give us so much information. And he's also the recipient of the Clinical and Translational Award that promotes innovation in medicine. He was the founder of a new medical school at Cleveland Clinic, the Lerner College of Medicine, which is where I actually taught when I was working a lot at Cleveland Clinic. I'm still involved there as a senior advisor to the Center of Functional Medicine, and he's a legend there. Uh, He was commissioned to the UK to lead a review of the entire National Health Service, and he's actively working clinically as a cardiologist. God, I don't know how he does it all. Additionally, Topol is editor-in-chief of Medscape, which publishes the Substack newsletter Ground Truths and maintains a strong presence on social media and Twitter, or now known as X, with over 680,000 followers. Now, we begin our conversation talking about the need for change 
and the emergence of AI in medicine. Dr. Topol discusses how medical imaging and disease diagnosis has and will continue to benefit from AI and how we're moving into an era of keyboard liberation. Thank God for that. I'm so sick of being on my keyboard with patients. <laughs> we talk specifically about some incredible advances in retinal imaging and AI's ability to detect early signs of disease that even an ophthalmologist trained at the best school, the best ophthalmologist in the world, would never even see because they didn't even know it was there. And AI identifies these things. Dr. Topol speaks to the challenges that will certainly arise as the field of medicine works to implement the incredible amounts of data that AI is soon to provide. It's no secret that we have a broken healthcare system. And Dr. Topol reveals what he believes will be the most exciting thing about the incorporation of AI into medicine, as well as how it will likely be the key to repairing the patient-doctor relationship. We also discuss how individuals will gain control over their own health as more and more AI tools come online, as well as how scientific research will be reimagined in the era of AI-enabled medicine. Whether you're fascinated or skeptical about AI, this is a mind-opening conversation that explores how AI has the potential to revolutionize personalized healthcare and reestablish a more humane approach to patient care. Now, let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Eric Topol. Well, welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy Podcast, uh, Eric. It's great to have you, and uh, I'm really inspired by your work. I think everybody heard from your bio, what you've done, and it's uh, it's really at the forefront of everything that's happening in medicine, and, and you keep doing that. So thanks for being on the Doctor's Pharmacy Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. So, you know, your, your book that you wrote recently was, uh, the latest book is called Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. And everybody's hearing about AI and the South Maltman and open AI and the dangers of AI and, you know, the, the controversies, and the concerns. And, you know, I've been kind of dreaming of this moment in healthcare where we actually could make sense of human biology with the help of artificial intelligence because, it's so complex. The human body has got 37 trillion cells. There's 37 billion trillion chemical reactions that happen in the body every second. And, you know, when you go to the doctor, you basically get your panel of 20 or 30 or 50 analytes. He does, he pokes around, listens to your heart, lungs, and maybe does a little x-ray here, there, sticks a scope in. But it's really the dark ages compared to where we are headed. And, uh, and you're at the forefront of understanding the intersection of the rapid changes in, in our understanding of human biology and the omics revolution and systems medicine with technology and with artificial intelligence. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, most people don't understand that doctors are working in an analog way, even though we have electronic medical records, the way we practice medicine really hasn't changed much in 150 years. And, and we don't use computers to help us sort through data make decisions and, figure out what to do for our patients. And, and there are now examples of this. So maybe you can start by talking about, you know, how did you first get interested in artificial intelligence in medicine and how, how do you see it, it having made change already with, with certain things like imaging or retinal scans or interpretations of EKGs that are helping us understand and diagnose diseases better and earlier. And, and then we'll talk about a little bit later about where do we see all this going? Because right now we're doing this sort of medicine better, but is it the right, only the right thing to be doing? Sure. Well, I think the interesting thing about the AI scene is it really didn't get real until, let's say, seven, eight years ago. Um, and it really, for our space of medicine, it was confined to medical images, uh, scans, uh, and that was the deep learning phase of AI. And it really has been formidable. That is just about every type of scan you can imagine 
but past slides, electrocardiograms, the retina, as you mentioned, skin lesions, they could be uh, interpreted as well or better uh, by machines that were trained with so-called supervised learning, meaning that, of course, you had to have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of images that were annotated by expert physicians. And then you could train a, a, a model to, to do better than humans. So that was really great. And, um, you know, back in 2019, I, when I wrote Deep Medicine, it was about that phase of deep learning, but that's like ancient that history we, now, right? Twenty nineteen. Yeah, 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 no, it's <laughs> it's amazing how quickly that has gone. Yeah, really, Mark. But what's interesting is, you know, I wrote in the book uh, that what we need is a new model because we didn't have one that could take all the layers of what me makes us unique. Uh, you know, you've alluded to that, not just the electronic he health record, but our genome, um, you know, our gut microbiome, our sensors, our environment, our immunome, the works, right? And the fact that those that data changes over time, and the fact that we could get the corpus of medical knowledge into that as well. So that's where we are now with this transformer model, also known as large language model phase, which is, of course, got major uh, jump in a year ago with uh, ChatGPT, and now, of course, the uh, GPT-4, Gemini, and future models, GPT-5, sometime next year, in fact. And that, of course, is getting us to that state where we could take all that data for a given patient or individual and uh, be able to not only define what is so critical about predicting a condition, better treatment, better prevention, um, so it's, we're on the cusp, but we haven't done it yet, to be honest. So, you know, uh, we're, it, there has, no one has actually done, uh, multiple layers. They've done electronic health records and a genome, electronic health records and a scan. But to take multiple layers, including sensors, uh, that's a, that's an analytical AI challenge that has yet to be, uh, solved. It will be imminently. Uh, and that's exciting. Yeah, I mean, and you, you know, when you talk about, you wrote an article that I, th I thought was just so uh, prescient and, and, and it was such a good description in a short amount of time. And I encourage people to read it called Arti As Artificial Intelligence Goes Multimodal, Medical Applications Multiply. And you, you, you talked about how we're going to be getting high dimensional data that underlie how the uniqueness of all of us and how it can be captured from all these different sources that you mentioned, including all the biomarkers we have through biosensors, wearables, implantables, our genome, our microbiome, our metabolome, our immunome, the transcriptome, proteome, epigenome, it goes on and on. And then our electronic health records, our lab tests, our family histories, unstructured text from our medical records, uh, and also things that are air pollution sensors we could be wearing. I just got one of those that someone sent me to try to wear to my air pollution, environmental stressors. Um, all these things are going to be then informed by the whole you know, Medline, a, a National Library of Medicine database of peer-reviewed data. And and it's going to create so much information. And it seems to me there's so, so an intersection of a number of trends right now, which are going to transform medicine in a way that we, we can barely imagine. And it's going to happen very soon, which is the omics revolution, the systems biology and medicine revolution, 
the biosensors and wearable revolution, and then the AI machine learning and big data analytic capacity that we have. And so those, those five basic trends are all converging in a way that, that uh, I think is within even four or five years, we're going to see medicine be profoundly different because the acceleration of this is happening so fast. And I'm excited about it because, you know, I feel like, I, you know, I've been trying to, with my little brain, put my head around all these, these immense complexity of human biology, which, you know, we've managed to navigate through this reductionist model of medicine and science into siloed specialties where you're super sub, 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 sub specialist on X, Y, or Z topic, but you don't understand how it all connects and interacts. And so the first time with AI, it seems like we're going to be able to do that. So how do you see how do you see this unfolding and where, how is this kind of happening and where are we going? Cause I feel, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm sitting on the edge of my seat and, and right now I, I feel like, you know, we're about to kind of get out of a, our, our, our little dark ages and enter into an era where, where we're going to be able to make a real transformation in people's health. Well, I think you're right. Um, it's extraordinary. This convergence uh, that you're getting at um, and it's going to happen in phases. So the first one is more the practical, which is, you know, I've been calling keyboard liberation. Yeah, whereas, thank God. I heard that you say that. Yeah. I'm like, hallelujah, because every know. doctor is stuck on their keyboard looking at the computer instead of looking at the patient. And so yeah, being yeah. free of that and is so huge. There's a, it's hated mutually by doctors and nurses <laughs> and patients. I mean, it's everything that lo people love to hate because um, it's destroyed that bond, that human-human yeah. human bond. And um that's going to be basically history of data clerk function because we're already seeing now in many uh, health systems around the country that you can do all this through um, the conversation. The only adjustment you have to make, Mark, is to articulate the physical exam findings with the patient. But other than that, the notes are far superior than That's the amazing. ones that are pecked along. And What's great is once you have that node digitized and it's got all the juice in it, two big things happen. One is that, you, of course, you could put it in any uh, format uh, conducive for the patient, you know, in terms of educational level or, or language or, you know, whatever cultural bent. You could also, that patient has the audio file, so if they don't understand something in that note, they can link it right to the auto file, listen to it again. And you know how many patients that you see where they're confused or they don't remember things. But the other big thing is on the clinician side, because instead of uh, having to peck through all this stuff, I, the orders for new tests and labs and re return appointments, prescriptions, billing, pre-authorization, it's all done. It's all done. And the nudges to the patient subsequent about the things that were discussed, like blood pressure, uh, did you check what were the results? You know, the AI picks that up, gets it back to the uh, physician. You know, all these things are now automated. So that will in itself be welcome. You know, instead of the things that all clinicians want to hate, this is, I think, something that will be widely embraced. And there's no, you know, as you know very well, Mark, there's a lot of concerns about confabulation, hallucination, but that that doesn't apply here. I mean, this is this is not that the AI is going to not going to be making things up about this kind of thing. Do you have that in your office yet? Do you have that in your office? Uh, I I've used it um, at Scripps Health, where I uh, do have a cardiology practice. Um, they haven't used what I consider the, the best of these, uh, but they have done a pilot. 
the, the largest one is the Microsoft uh, Nuance, but the company that I've advised um, is a Bridge Health, uh, which should just derive from University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon. But there's been several. I mean, there's about 20 of these out there in various testing. Damn, I want to get one right have... away from my practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I think this is inevitability because um, this is finally the payback for all these bad years of having to become data clerks. Uh, but it's just the beginning. You know, it's just one thing that's going to be remarkably different. And that helps us do... Uh, care better, but it doesn't it change what we're doing. In other words, you know, we're going to be able to read x-rays better and MRI imaging better and pathology reports better and EKGs better and uh, retinal imaging that tells us so much about a patient's health. And these are incredible advances that are going to create much more refinement and understanding of, of how to be precise in our diagnosis of patients. And that's going to up-level medicine for sure. But, yeah, but what, let me, if, can I just yeah, uh, go, go, think in one yeah. thing? Yeah. Because the retinal image is something that is extraordinary uh so before we just pass over that yeah yeah no, it's very uh, cool. you know i just want to cool. i just want to point out that you know the the original task was to see if the ai could could interpret the image as well as a clinician but what wasn't envisioned is for that the ai could see things that humans will never see so with the retina as you touched on the ability to to predict alzheimer's disease Parkinson's disease five to seven years before there's any symptoms. The issue of, uh, of course, um, the hepatobiliary tract, kidney disease, cardiac risk, risk of, you know, across all systems, uh, diabetes control, blood pressure control. Someday we will be taking pictures of our own retina and get it as a checkup with an AI. So it's pretty amazing. And of course, that extends to cardiograms and chest x-rays. Each of them, there's all this stuff that the AI can can see, if you will, that we, we humans will never see. Never see. It. So yeah. it's, well, it's, it's even better, it's better than humans, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why, you know, when I interviewed uh, Jeff Hinton uh, recently for the podcast I do, Ground Truths, he said, you know, he's worried about AI because it's getting advanced so quickly, but not for medicine. He thinks this is the sweet spot. This is really where the, the good is extraordinary. I agree. I mean, you know, I remember in medical school, you had the ophthalmoscope and you had to look in someone's eye and you know, okay, you learn about AV nicking and high blood pressure and diabetic retinopathy and macular degeneration. You could see all that stuff. But there wasn't a whole lot else you could kind of figure out, you know, and if you were an ophthalmologist, you might have a few more refinements in your ability to see things. But what you're saying is you can see things like Alzheimer's. So how how does it pick that up? What is it actually seeing and looking at, for example, for Alzheimer's? Well, you know, this goes back to when the realization um, was made, and that was when you showed the retina picture to ophthalmologists and you say, is this retina from a man or a woman? They got it right 50% of the time. And the AI got it right 97% of the time. And the answer is, we don't really know, okay? That is, there's explainability work to, you know, define these so-called saliency maps to try to uh, deconvolute the model. But as far as what is it picking up to see the risk of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or hepatobiliary disease, it isn't clear. I mean, there's some aspects that um, have been determined, but basically, um, 
because these models are so extraordinary in terms of what they've learned. And this is all from deep learning. This isn't even from, you know, this transformer model era. So, so, so can um, you just stop there yeah. for a second? You're talking about deep learning transformer model. Can you just explain the sort of shift and what you're thinking? And because I don't think most people understand what that is. Right. So what was the phase of uh, AI that lit up the world that Jeff Hinn and his colleagues like uh, Jan LeCun and, and many others, um, they basically found that there was this ability to input data that was supervised. That is, that for our purposes, there was, it was labeled by, uh, by experts, so-called ground truths. And so they put it, what they knew was the actual image interpretation and train with tens of hundreds of thousands of these images so that the machine could see stuff. So this is a knowledge base or expert informed AI, right? Yeah, yeah. So that really was, um, you know, deep neural networks. That was the story. It required a single task, unimodal. Um, and then what happened, a, a, a Google team in 2017 discovered what they call transformer models. Uh, the title of the preprint, uh, attention is all you need. And basically it changed the attention from a single uh, a bit of information, like a word in a sentence, to, to basically the context of the entire sentence, or of course, much broader than that, the, what, what turned out to be unsupervised, putting in the entire you know, uh, internet, Wikipedia, 100,000 books, 200,000 books. So that's what the transformer model, large language model, generative AI year that we're in now. It didn't start when ChatGPT was released uh, last year, uh, but it actually was in incubation. It was, it was being pursued about six years now, but it, it's now blossomed. And that we basically have two big types of AI now. The, the old, if you will, the old uh, and the yeah. new. Yeah. I mean, it, it just seems it's going to accelerate the pace of medical discovery because, you know, if, if a simple retinal scan can pick up things that we didn't even know we were missing, you know, we didn't even know we didn't know. They were unknown unknowns, as Donald Rumsfeld oh, yeah. said. It, and, exactly. and, and that's just the back of the eye. Imagine when we put in all these things that we just mentioned, the, the whole omics field, the biosensors, the, you know, you know your, your pictures of what you're eating, your movement pattern. I mean, it's, it's just an enormous amount of data that's going to pick up patterns in that data that we've never seen before and that are going to inform what's happening on a biological level that is, I think is going to redefine medicine just as we sort of redefine physics from a Newtonian or a world is flat view to, you know, a quantum view to even, you know, beyond that. It's like we're, we're kind of in that era of biology where, 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 where we basically have a profound revolution that's going to upend medicine. And I, I'd love to hear your perspective on as we sort of enter that era and we start learning these things and understand the body as a network, understand the body as a system, instead of these siloed specialties, how do you see that shifting medicine, medical education, medical practice, reimbursement? I mean, these are, these are, this is a massive shift. Well, it is seismic. It's, it's, going to be a, a challenge because medicine, as you know, doesn't change easily. And then you got, you know, throw in all these other practical matters like, you know, reimbursement and education, regulatory, uh, trust, uh, implementation. I mean, there's a long list here 
uh, of challenges. So, you know, this isn't going to be easy, but it's going to be, you know, the biggest shakeup in the history of medicine. Uh, the question is how, uh, how we adapt, how we, uh, you know, our problem at the moment, outside of a practical thing, like we discussed with the, the keyboard thing, is to get things implemented, we've got to have compelling evidence. And there's a, there's a dearth of that because, you know, just like you can't get uh, thousands of doctors to annotate images, uh, and that's why this new form, transformer model, doesn't require supervised learning. It's self-supervised. So that's, it, it basically is the bypass to what was holding back medicine. But just like that problem, you know, we, we have the problem of uh, lack of dedication to do prospective trials, whether they're randomized or not. But getting the compelling evidence, which basically says to everyone in the medical community, this this is it. You know, that this is going to lead to better patient outcomes, better, you know, better everything. And there's always going to be some risk, of course, when there's never going to be, you know, total positive uh, side of the story. But we, uh, except for the gastroenterologists who have done 33 randomized trials of colonoscopy with machine vision uh, and, and a few other randomized trials in radiology that have been quite impressive, particularly mammography, there hasn't been much compelling evidence so far. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, you look at, uh, you know, the amount of, of deaths are caused by by medical practice, uh, probably a third or fourth leading cause of death are, are you know, complications or reactions to drugs or medical errors. It's huge. And, you know, I was listening to Elon Musk talk about uh, cars and AI and, and self-driven cars. And he says, you know, about, what, 40,000 people in America die from car accidents every year. You know, what if that was reduced to 10,000? But, you know, that's a dramatic drop. But still, you're going to have some people dying from a self-driving car. And are we willing to accept that? You know, so I think I think that's really uh, a point where we have to kind of understand the value proposition and understand that you know there is some risk, but the the upside in terms of reducing our healthcare costs, the the, the burden on our healthcare system is going to be profound. Well, you know, just to amplify what you just said, we as physicians don't tend to want to acknowledge the problem of medical errors. So I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, you know, uh, the Johns Hopkins study that was published earlier this year in the British Medical Journal, uh, journal about 800,000 Americans are either dying or seriously disabled each year from diagnostic medical errors. So you would think we'd want to invest in ways to bring that number down to lowest possible. But that hasn't been the way, you know, medicine has worked. Uh, the medical error of diagnosis is something that's got to be confronted. Hey, everyone, it's Dr. Mark. Now, sometimes when I'm traveling, I need snacks. I don't always snack, but I like to have healthy snacks available. But if I'm traveling, it often means I'm tempted to reach out for whatever's quick and available rather than what's healthy and good for me. But thankfully, Thrive Market has made it easy for me to order my favorite snacks online to travel with in my emergency food pack. And I literally have a day's worth of rations in my backpack at all times so I don't get in a food emergency. The convenience of getting my food quickly shipped to my doorstep is a huge time 
lifesaver and helps keep me eating the right kinds of food that help me meet my health goals. Some of my favorite snacks from Thrive Market include Chomps Free Range Turkey Sticks, Hue Mint Chocolate Snacking Gems, Gimme Organic Olive Oil Seaweed Snacks, and their private label Pitted Olives, which are green olives. They're yummy. And they even have a price match guarantee, so you know you're getting the best prices on your favorite brands. You can join Thrive Market with my exclusive offer and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Head over to thrivemarket.com forward slash Hyman today. Plus orders over $49 are shipped free and delivered with carbon neutral shipping from their zero waste warehouses. That's thrivemarket.com forward slash Hyman. Have you ever heard of the blue zones? Well, in short, these are areas around the globe where people tend to live the longest. Now, there are a number of characteristics in blue zones that people share, many of which have to do with their gut microbiome. For instance, people in these regions have some of the highest levels of something called acromancia in their guts, a beneficial bacterial strain known for strengthening and regulating the gut lining. Acromancia is one of the most important determinants of maintaining your long-term health and metabolism. It can be hard for those of us who don't live in the blue zone to get enough of this beneficial bacteria via diets. But now, thanks to Pendulum, it's easy. They've done something nobody else could do. They're the first and only company to offer products that directly contain live Acromancia mucinophilia. Right now, Pendulum is offering my listeners $20 off their first month of an Acromancia subscription with the code Hyman. Just head over to PendulumLife.com to check it out. That's P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M-L-I-F-E.com with the code Hyman for 20% off. And now let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, when I think about uh, what it, what actually medicine is today, you know, you, you go see the doctor, they ask you a bunch of questions, they run a bunch of tests, it filters through their one little brain. <laughs> they went to medical school. I went to medical school in 1983. I don't know when I medical school. I've tried to keep up and, you know, I've had my own narrow experience and, and that patient is relying on me to create all the associations, pattern recognition, uh, sort of be able to sift through all the medical literature, whatever the 9 million published articles on PubMed, make it make sense of what's going on with them. It's kind of embarrassing. Like I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of basically groping around in the dark and I still obviously help people. And obviously you do and doctors do a good job. But when you think about what's possible in terms of decision support for practitioners, it's not like the AI is going to be treating the patient, but it's sort of an AI assisted doctor where the doctor then will have to get all that data, then filter through their understanding and medical knowledge. And that decision support from the AI will help them create better outcomes, more personalized treatments, specific care, and and really overall improve healthcare. So how do you see the AI decision support process happening, unfolding? Because I think this is where I'm most excited about. Well, this is uh, happening really quickly, the proof of how the large language model exceeds the doctor's ability to make complex diagnoses. And what is, is an extraordinary recent uh, preprint it, just a number of days ago was uh, from the Google research team where they took over 300 of the New England Journal Clinical Pathologic Conferences, which are the master clinician trying to get the diagnosis yeah, right. of the you know really complex, challenging case. And... What was amazing is that the large language model got the differential diagnosis uh, randomized against nine in, uh, against 20 internists with nine years of experience. So these are not just rookies. These are yeah, experienced yeah, yeah. internists. The, the, the AI got twice the accuracy, twice 
than the the internist. And then when you when you gave the internists a Google search, it didn't make that much difference. Uh, and even when you gave the the internists um, then being able to go to GPT, well, it was it was a, a med palm two fine tune. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's some large language model. They it still didn't get to the large language model alone level. So what we're seeing now, and that that experience is getting uh, replicated, that large language models do very well. Now, you and I, in seeing a patient, we wouldn't only rely on the output of the large language model, but what it does, in, especially in these challenging, complex, it could be rare conditions, just very difficult you know, cases, um, it, what it does is it may bring to mind some conditions that didn't pop into our, into our head. And so, you, you know, it basically, it, this is an exciting thing to see. And as you know, there's been amazing anecdotes about how patients have put their symptoms. Yeah, that's or true. a mother to her son, for her son, you know, put symptoms of uh, after seeing 17 doctors for three years for a boy who was just, you know, debilitated and growth arrest, and then gets the diagnosis of occult spina bifida herself through chat GPT. I mean, this is happening now. Yeah, you can't hold back patients from using. No, they're um, going to, right? Yeah, it's like a Google search. But, you know, why do a Google search when you're going to get so much enriched uh, information, which you have to verify, of course? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of the part of the challenge with this is also that it, it's going to pick up things that we didn't know and challenge the, the current model, you know, as we now know, you know, diseases aren't homogenous. And our current diagnostic model is based on uh, symptoms and pathology and geography. You know, what's the symptom? Where is it in your body? And what does it look like under a microscope? Not causes and mechanisms and not the infinite complexity of our, of our whole phenome that we just described. And as we start to sort of ingest the phenome into to this AI monster, whatever you call it, or AI genius, uh, it's, it's, it's going to come up with a lot of different associations and patterns that, that reflect a, a way to personalize medicine, to create precision, or as you say, individualized medicine. That's what excites me because, you know, Alzheimer's isn't uniform. Diabetes isn't uniform. Can't, if you have breast cancer, we know that we know this. If you have, I, I mean, years ago, I read a paper and I think a jammer in the journal was like, you know, the, the staging of cancer, breast cancer, um, is, is far less predictive of the outcomes than if you look at the genetics of the cancer and that there is no such thing as breast cancer. They're breast cancers and they're all incredibly heterogeneous. And so this is not true, just true for cancer, it's true for everything. And whether it's rheumatoid arthritis or whether it's irritable bowel syndrome or whether it's migraine headaches or whatever the condition is. And we, we in medicine just treat them all the same. You know, you've got a migraine, that's the diagnosis. And, and, and I think, you know, we're, we're really good at this diagnostic you know, differential diagnosis process. That's what we get trained in medical school. But it doesn't really take us down the next layer, which is looking at mechanisms and causes and personalization. So how do you see where we're headed in medicine, sort of breaking that old paradigm and helping us create a more individualized sort of approach to different diseases? You know, I'm really glad you brought this up because that's kind of the reductionist, uh, you know, just because we, we just can't deal with this difficulty of heterogeneity of people, of diagnoses, uh, of response to treatments, and, uh, and on and on, we, we ba basically dumb it down. And we just say, well, you got this condition or that condition. When, as you said, um, you know, things like type 2 diabetes, it's not just type 2, there's about like 20 subtypes of type 2. 
uh, and on and on too. So we will have this kind of pinpoint uh, precision and accuracy, which will help promote, you know, very specific individualized treatment. And that will, that can also extend to, you know, what would be the best optimal diet for any given person, because, you know, we, we respond to food remarkably differently. Uh, everything we do, we, we are unique. Um, even two identical twins are unique. They have very different uh, epigenomes and, and uh, you know, so we have to appreciate once we get to the ability to deal with the, the information, which we couldn't until now, and we're just starting to in many respects, then we can start to get to once you recognize that each human is unique, then you can hopefully get to be much better at preventing, diagnosing, treating, getting you know better outcomes and promoting health span. Yeah, I think it's so true, Eric. We, we, we in medicine, uh, you know, wait until there's something to, to look at or do. And, and uh, you know, when your blood sugar goes up or your blood pressure goes up or, you know, you get a, a, a you know, a chest pain or whatever, <laughs> your cholesterol goes up. But the truth is that disease is, is a continuum from optimal wellness and perfect health to this transition slowly over often decades to symptoms and then diseases. And in medicine, we just, we're, we're, we're jumping in the game so late. And, and I think what AI and, and machine learning is going to help us do as you start to ingest the phenome is to start to look at these patterns and these transitions from wellness to disease much earlier and be able to intervene earlier before there's ever a symptom. Like you mentioned, you can look at someone's eye and see whether they're going to have Alzheimer's or look at, um, various even things like voice patterns or you know typing on a computer or all these things are actually signals that that can be interpreted that we have no clue as doctors what to do with or how to make sense of but but through proper application of ai and medicine we're going to be able to start to sort and sift through this right that's exactly right the fact that you could predict a condition before any symptoms ever manifest and we have ways to prevent that condition to apply for that person that, that's what makes this era uh, so extraordinary, right? That we couldn't really uh, have this personalized preventive medicine. And, you know, frankly, Mark, preventive medicine has been a fantasy throughout our careers. Oh, we want to prevent. Primary prevention of illness is like almost unheard of, right? But, you know, secondary prevention, you know, once you've had a heart attack, you know, prevent the second heart attack. Okay, sure. But primary prevention is going to be actualized in the era of AI for the conditions in which there's a way to truly prevent. So right now, yeah, I wouldn't say our Alzheimer's drugs that have recently been approved are the end all to do that, but we're Hardly. chipping away at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. But we are going to have drugs and interventions that will prevent conditions like neurodegenerative conditions. Yeah. Uh, we are going to have ways to prevent cancer, like the earliest sign, uh, you know, to rev up the immune system, to squash it, or, you know, to go into high mode surveillance to get frequent, uh, you know, cell-free tumor DNA blood samples and all sorts of ways to get on top of it before it ever would show up on a scan, uh, before it ever could go, you know, to, to the chance of spread. So many diseases that we have to confront that are common 
will have an altogether different approach once you know that the person's at risk. If you know a person's going to have asthma in their life, prevent that they ever have a wheeze. I mean, you know, heart failure. No, they're never going to have heart failure. So you just have to know what the person is at risk for and then have uh, something on the menu that works. Yeah, I think it's it's true. And I think, um, you know, w one of the things from my perspective is is this whole idea of uh, I wrote a book called Ultra Prevention, you know, like 20 years ago, it essentially was about this. It's like, well, we don't really have true prevention because we're we're just looking for things after they've occurred through a pap test or a mammogram or a, you know, or, or a colonoscopy or whatever we're doing. And and we're entering an era where we're going to be able to see these subtle changes and then learn how to modify them and tweak them and, and through diet and lifestyle and some of the preventive things that we know work in a, in a much more personalized way. And I think one of the things about your work that I, I love is that you do talk about nutrition. You know, very few doctors talk about it. You, you're you're very uh, focused on on uh, what that looks like. You recently published uh, in November uh, an article on your on your Substack called "Towards an Optimal Diet," looking at you know the role of, of diet, nutrition, and chronic disease. And you know, for me, it, it, it's oh, this best of worst of times moment. We have the best of times with the advances in technology, all the exciting things we've been talking about that are going to revolutionize medicine. But at the same time, we're also seeing this explosion of chronic disease and diet-related illness is the number one killer in the world now. And you know, we're seeing uh, increasing mental health disorders and and all sorts of uh, burden of chronic disease that that are exploding at the same time we're seeing all these advances in medicine. So how do we reconcile these two? It's like, it's like how do we kind of use one to solve the other? Because I, I feel for me, this is the biggest problem that no one's really addressing is we're, we're, we have better, better healthcare than ever before and, and we're getting sicker and dying younger than ever before and our life expectancy is going down. So we got to do something about it. Well, yeah, I mean, it isn't one simple thing, of course. There's lots of uh, moving parts here. On the one hand, you know, we, as you well know, we have a, 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 a monstrous problem with obesity and diabetes and diabetes, the twin pandemics. And even though we're starting to chip away a little bit of that with these GLP-1 family drugs. Yeah, I mean, like Ozempic. We're, we're talking about, yeah, we're, you know, we, 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 Manduro and then the triple receptors that will follow. But, you know, we're only at the at the beginning of that. And who knows how many people ultimately will have uh, their weight uh, issues addressed. And, of course, the toll of obesity on every system in the body uh, is, is profound. Now, at the same time, we ignore our environment. You know, yesterday, my friend Sid Mukherjee had a great article. Oh, yeah on the carcinogens and air pollution. And, and I actually think that ultra processed foods and a lot of other uh, things that we take in, in our food stock uh, and beverages uh, is potentially a liability for bad health, cancer, cardiovascular risk. Uh, we don't pay attention to it. I'd remove the word potentially. <laughs> Yeah, I think the data is so clear on this ultra processed yeah. food link. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I I shouldn't have used that word. I'm glad we're we're, we're in a accord. Yeah, uh, no, not potentially. The data is overwhelming, but nobody does anything about it. You know, so the and what are we doing to get rid of the carcinogens and the things that are accelerating uh, chronic major chronic diseases like you know like heart disease and cancer and neurodegenerative diseases. So we, we've identified them, but we do nothing about it. And, you know, remember, Mark, how long did it take to get trans fats to be, you know, outlawed? 
but they're not even, I mean, even the government has, has ruled them as non-grass generally, they're not recognized as safe to eat, but they're still in yeah. the grocery stores, even yeah. after almost uh, eight years later, having that ruling, which is the food exactly. industry's lobbying efforts. Yeah. So, you know, this is amazing, right? So we, we know some of the culprits, but we don't do, we have no teeth. We have no, we do nothing about it. You know, Europe, they actually have done better on this than the U.S. So this is really uh, disheartening. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I, I think we're going to link in the show notes to this article in your, your newsletter called Ground Truths. I love this. Ground Truths is like, you know, what are the fundamental laws of nature? Is sort of like how I think about it. What is sort of the indisputable truth? And and I think we're we're getting closer to understanding that link between uh, all the diseases that we're seeing exploding and the things that we have control over, our diet, our lifestyle, uh, sleep, stress, environmental toxins, things that we actually can modify that doctors actually pay very little attention to, right? Yeah, well, you know, just just look at, you know, you're well aware of this. How come people in their 20s now are getting colon cancer? How come people in their 30s who never smoke are developing lung cancer, breast cancer? Uh, you know, it isn't the, it isn't their genes, you know, what is what's going on here? Uh, and so you have to really start looking at things like uh, our environment, which includes, you know, what, what we're what we're eating, what we're breathing. Uh, and, you know, again, it's like a blind eye to this stuff. It's true. It's shocking to me that, you know, uh, Fatima Sanford from Harvard, who's a professor, is now in the U.S. Dietary Guidelines Committee, said on 60 Minutes that obesity is genetic. And, uh, you know, I think there are genes involved for sure that put you at risk or predispose you. But, you know, where were all the, you know, obese people when you and I were born? You know, I, there was five, 10% obesity. Now it's 42%. And hundred years ago, it was nothing. And, and, you know, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of frightening to see that level of, of scientists who's now on a federal guidelines committee coming up with this concept and not talking about uh, the real issue. And she's, you know, got funding from Ozempic and it's just like, oh my God, this is, <laughs> It's so corrupt, you know, it reminds me of, oh. and, and kind of where we are now in a way, I think uh, I, I, it's a little pejorative for doctors, but I, I think it kind of reminds me of Voltaire's uh, saying where he said, doctors are men who prescribe medicines of which they know little to cure diseases of which they know less and human beings of whom they know nothing. And I think, you know, we're going to look back maybe in five or 10 years ago, go, what the heck were we doing? What were we thinking? Because, you know, I feel like it's such an, like, I'm just sort of sitting on the edge of my seat. It's such an exciting time. And I think it's, it, if we can, if we can cross this threshold and we can get the paradigm to shift and we can use technology to do it i, I think the world's going to look very different i think our ability to treat disease is going to be very different um and what it, so tell me in the in that context what are you most excited about in this is it just making healthcare improvements around how the process goes around decision support around the healthcare costs or is it around really a, a scientific paradigm shift well, I mean, actually, for me, uh, we've touched on things that I think are, are really uh, the big frontiers, you know, uh, not only including a virtual coach for people who want to use it to keep them healthy uh, and hospitals at home where you unless you're, you need to be in the ICU, you don't ever go near the hospital uh, because you can be monitored with multimodal AI. But to me, the far reaching objective is to restore the patient-doctor relationship. Because, you know, I, I've watched this go down the tubes. I mean, you know, back when I finished med school and started um, training, uh, uh, post-graduate you know, training in the early 80s, 
the relationship with a doctor and patient was was a precious thing. I mean, you knew patient knew that you were there for them, that um, when you met with them, you know, you were there. You were, you present. were present. You were present. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you had their back and they uh, it, it was an intimate, compassionate, empathetic trust relationship. What is it now? There's very little of that. I mean, you know, there are some exceptions, but there's not the time, you know, and that's why I, I really think this gift of time that AI can bring us, um, whereby, you know, we give more autonomy to patients. So that decompresses the time of clinicians. Um, I think this would be our, uh, uh, the most exciting thing to derive from the AI era. Uh, we have ways to go because yeah, yeah. right now things are definitely going in the wrong direction and we have shortage of clinicians. But uh, ultimately, um, if we do this right, if we stand up to administrative overlords that tend to rule the roost at a lot of health systems and, and uh, health practices around the country, then maybe we can get this on track. Yeah, I think it's so important. And, and, and it also speaks to, you know, the, the need to help those who are not having access to healthcare and medicine, who don't have experts in their area. And, you know, I remember when I was a, a family doctor in our, you know, Idaho in the middle of nowhere in a logging town. And, you know, we were it. There was like five family doctors. And so when you're on call and something came in and it was weird or strange, you had to deal with it. And so I remember like I would call up the doctors in Spokane, Washington, which was the closest sort of major hospital. And I said, okay, what do I do? I got this baby. I, it's a premature birth. I got to put in this, uh, you know, umbilical catheter, which how it was. And, and I would be coached through it. But, you know, I was a rural doctor back then. And there are now people, you know, globally were facing a, a doctor shortage and nursing shortage uh, problems with accessing healthcare. And I think these technologies will actually help people in those areas you know, and some of these health disparities and, and, and scale up medicine in a way that I think we haven't seen before. I, I really agree with that. I mean, we've got to do something to address, you know, the inequities and they include not just the, you know, socioeconomic, but, you know, rural versus urban, like you're getting at. And, you know, the, this is essentially software and it, it doesn't have to be uh, a problem to uh, accentuate or exacerbate the gap but it hopefully could actually reduce the problem, which is very, uh, it's so severe that we have today. But, you know, I think this is something that uh, we have an opportunity. We can see where this is headed if we really, you know, go after this. You know, right now there's this big controversy about accelerating, decelerating this. Uh, it seems to me, you know, we need to be accelerating uh, for the most part because there's too much good here that can be uh, actualized. Particularly in medicine, you know, I think yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the key. And I think, you know, um, the, the, the doctor and the healthcare system is, is a bottleneck for people who are suffering and uh, not just taking time to get an appointment or lack of access, but, but you know, most of the health um, issues we have, I, I believe, can be solved by self-care if we had the right information like you're mentioning what are the foods that affect your blood sugar different than this person and i, I think you know having a kind of ai powered personal health co-pilot is going to be possible by ingesting this large phenomic data all the stuff that i said at the beginning all your you know lab tests wearables your symptoms and it goes into 
uh, a system that'll that'll create some intelligent guidance for how you can handle this on your own, what to eat, how to, you know, exercise better, simple practices you can do. And I found that, you know, as, as a functional medicine doctor, you know, most of my patients can get better from things without me. Like if they, if they just had the roadmap and could follow it and do the self-care practices, because, you know, most conditions that are chronic illness often can be solved through, you know, really simple, basic lifestyle or other, other changes. And, and I think that's going to, in some ways, relieve pressure on the healthcare system. You can go to your doctor when you need to, but right now it's almost like a guild. You have to go through the healthcare system to get your data. You don't own your data. You don't own, you, you, you can now, I wear an aura ring or a watch. You can get your biosensor data, but what about what's under the hood? <laughs> you know, under, right. you can't. Right. And, and so now I think we're going to, I, I co-founded this company called Function Health, which is designed to be an AI powered personal health co-pilot where, where all this data is going to be ingested and you'll be guiding on what to do for, for self-care and then when to go get medical care and what kind of medical care you might need. And, and then it'll help the doctors have a decision support tool, but it's happening outside the healthcare system because, you know, it's so hard to change Help, uh, you know, the current paradigm, uh, the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn was a, so the, the first discussion of this idea of paradigm shift. And he said how hard it is to change normal science, essentially what, what people are doing now. But I think through sort of coming from the outside, from the consumer driven aspect of healthcare, I think we're going to see a greater acceleration of this. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that movement and that, that effort. Yeah, no, I think this is really interesting what you're bringing up. So firstly, there are now oh, 20 or 30 companies, mostly startups, that are offering coaching chatbot with humans in the loop as a backup for most chronic conditions like hypertension, depression, diabetes, you know. So they are, some of them have done randomized trials to show they're really helping people. So, you know, we were talking about unimodal. So it's just narrow. They're helping one condition. The, the next phase is what you are getting at, which is a virtual coach across all conditions to prevent them. And uh, I don't see theoretically why that can't be done. It, it has to be proven that it's working. Now, one of the things that helped me uh, in recent days to see, well, this is inevitable. Um, there was a paper by the Stanford group in Nature about organ-specific clocks. It was to cover last week. And um, you like it's aging an clocks, paper. you mean? Or aging yeah, clocks. aging yeah. clocks. So yeah. you know how you can get uh, a, a so-called Horvath or epigenetic yeah, clock, clock to yeah. say, what is your biological age? And hopefully it's similar or better than your chronological age. Well, mine was 43 uh, that, and I'm 64, so I'm, I'm going with that. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. Good for you. Wow. Wow. Anyway, that that isn't that helpful Uh compared, I think, with organ-specific age. So what they discovered, which is using AI. Yeah, my back is about it? 110, but. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But yeah, you didn't, need the, you didn't need the proteins to know that. But what they discovered, which was amazing, and they, they, they validated through three different populations, um, was that there's signatures in proteins that can be uh, assay. Uh, in each of these organs to know for you, what, what are you at risk for? Are you at risk for your kidney, your liver, your heart? And this is just yet another layer of data, which we didn't have before to add to the mix. So, you know, I do envision that this, this virtual coaching 
you know, with uh, periodic, whether it's retinal assessment or organ specific clocks or, you know, you name it. Um, and what they showed in that study uh, in the report in Nature was the proteins correlated with what happened to people. That is, people with accelerated aging of their heart had heart attacks and heart failure. For, uh, people with brain uh, aging, of course, went on to Alzheimer's. And so this is yet another way to anticipate a in, individual. Uh, you, you won't get that from an overall body clock, but you'll get it from, you know, organ clocks. And I think, I think that, that to me was, uh, you know, really one of many important in the chain of recent discoveries. Well, that, that speaks to the real issue here, right? Which is what are we looking at as doctors? We're, we're looking at, you know, basically things with a, a magnifying glass, not a microscope. And now we have an electron microscope, <laughs> you know, yeah. to even look deeper. And I, I yeah. think, I, I think, you know, there's tens and tens of thousands of molecules and proteins and metabolites and, you know, even peptides and, and things that are floating around in your blood, many of them even from your microbiome. Stan Hazen said he thinks about a third of all the metabolites in your blood are from your microbiome. And we don't look at that. We, you know, if you do an extensive panel of tests, you might even get, you know, 50, a hundred blood tests, but that's kind of minuscule when it comes to what's really going on. And so what you're talking about really is this on this precipice of being able to look at all of these analytes from all the different sources and be able to track what's going on in your body and use that information to, to optimize your health and to do research in a different way. So can just the last few minutes we have, I'd love to sort of have you kind of pontificate on how we are going to reimagine research in this era of AI enabled medicine. Well, I mean, I think the research has to be more to um, get uh, a, a change in practice. So another really good example of the same, you know, major discovery, the, the Icelandic group publishes that if, when people in Iceland had their genomes assessed, they found that, you know, 4% could have had their lifespan expand, uh, extended up to seven years if they had known the information about, like, for example, BRCA2 mutation, recently published in the New England Journal. So we, the, what I'm getting at, Mark, is we have abundant medical research that sits in these high-tier journals, goes nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> never, never goes into patients. Yeah. Uh, never is proven in real patients in the real world that it changes their, their health. It promotes their health. That's what we need now to basically uh, get this into high gear. Uh, we we have too much stuff that's stuck in the, uh, you know, what what well, I think you you recognize there's this paternalism in medicine, and uh, you know, the patients uh, don't tell them about their their genomic data because you know they won't be able to handle the truth. It's a little patronizing. Wrong. It's a little patronizing. Yeah, yeah. It's their data. If they want to get their data and they want to know what caveats there are and, you know, so-called variants of unknown significance, that's their right. But we don't let them have their data. So we have to stop this. And that's holding us back. Yeah, it's true. And I think I just want to point out that you're the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, which is really designed to translate from the bench to the clinic 
research that's going to change people's lives. And and we're so slow in medicine. <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody knows the story of Semmelweis, who, who sort of figured out that that we should wash our hands before child, you know, attending to births. And he he saw that the midwives patients were not dying of childbirth fever and all the doctor's patients were. And he said, you know, guys, we should probably wash our hands. They're washing their hands. It might, maybe it's going to help. And they were like, God, how could you even suggest that, that doctors would be causing any harm to their patients? You're excommunicated and he died in, you know, in, in disgrace. And it took 50 years to, to figure out that we should wash our hands before surgery, you know, like, and I, I, I kind of, it's kind of like that right now with the advances are happening so rapidly in medical science and, and doctors and my daughter's in medical school now. And I'm like, just so embarrassed. Oh, great. I said, yeah. Rachel, are you, are you learning about the microbiome? You no. Know? Did you learn about insulin resistance? No. Did you learn about nutrition? Well, we learned about amino acids and, and fatty acids. <laughs> I'm like, well, what are you going to tell your patient to eat? <laughs> I was, I'm like, what is happening out there? So I, I just so excited by this moment because I think it's going to be a way to disrupt healthcare and, and, and that, that we haven't been able to do yet. And I, and I'm, I'm so excited that, that you've been thinking about this, leading this work. Uh, you know, you, 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 you've done so much in your career that's advanced science and thinking so much. And, you know, it really, it makes me very inspired to, to know people like you and who are at the, the peak of healthcare and, and, and understand these concepts and are trying to push medicine forward into the place where it can really be what it's designed to be a, 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 a profession that really is there for helping and healing and transforming lives and not just a big medical industrial complex. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks, Mark. That means a lot. And, uh, you know, healing, caring, those are the, those are the key. We got to get to that, uh, and do it better and, and, you know, leverage what we can out of AI and machines to help us get there. Yeah. What was that quote? The secret of, uh, caring for the patient. The care of the patient is caring, caring for, for the, the patient. patient. Francis <laughs> yeah. Peabody, 1927. Yeah, my right. favorite quote, actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's exactly true. And that's such a beautiful sentiment. I think this revolution in medicine and AI and systems biology and all the things we're working on, I think are, are going to allow us to bring humanists back into medicine, which seems almost paradoxical given, given that it's technology. But I think it's going to allow a much more humane approach to our patients and i can't wait to have keyboard liberation <laughs> yeah brain. it's it's coming <laughs> it's gonna happen fast you'll see all right yeah well, any final thoughts uh, eric on on where we're headed and what you're inspired about next well no i'm just excited i i was talking to my fellow uh, recently about how he's going to really see it because it's going to take some years uh, every time i forecast something i realize that uh, it, my impatience uh tends to accelerate when we're going to really get there. But, you know, we will eventually. It will be a far better way that we practice medicine and patients will derive far more benefit. They'll, they'll have renewed uh, faith in physicians and the relationship they have with them. Uh, and, you know, this, this is really a, a unique time to look forward to. I, I hope we'll get there. The sooner, the better. Well, I think, you know, both of, I, both of us are obviously take care of our health and are focused on our health. So hopefully we're going to extend our life long enough. We'll be alive when all this happens. So. I hope so. Well, look forward to having more chats with you and, and following this along the way. And thanks for all your work, Eric. And, thank you. Uh, and uh, thanks for being on the Doctor's Pharmacy Podcast. 
Thanks for listening today. If you love this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Leave a comment on your own best practices on how you upgrade your health and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And follow me on all social media channels at Dr. Mark Hyman. And we'll see you next time on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Hyman. Thanks for tuning into The Doctor's Pharmacy. I hope you're loving this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do and introducing you to all the experts that I know and I love and that I've learned so much from. And I want to tell you about something else I'm doing, which is called Mark's Picks. It's my weekly newsletter. And in it, I share my favorite stuff from foods to supplements to gadgets to tools to enhance your health. It's all the cool stuff that I use and that my team uses to optimize and enhance our health. And I'd love you to sign up for the weekly newsletter. I'll only send it to you once a week on Fridays. Nothing else, I promise. And all you have to do is go to drhyman.com forward slash picks to sign up. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks, P-I-C-K-S, and sign up for the newsletter. And I'll share with you my favorite stuff that I use to enhance my health and get healthier and better and live younger, longer. This podcast is separate from my clinical practice at the Ultra Wellness Center, my work at Cleveland Clinic and Function Health, where I'm the chief medical officer. This podcast represents my opinions and my guests' opinions. Neither myself nor the podcast endorses the views or statements of my guests. This podcast is for educational purposes only. It's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. Practitioner now. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who is trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health. Keeping this podcast free is part of my mission to bring practical ways of improving health to the general public. And in keeping with that theme, I'd like to express gratitude to those sponsors that made today's podcast possible.